this morning we are going to be finishing up uh, chapter 9 of the Gospel of Matthew, starting in verse 35, like you see on the board up there. Um, this is a kind of a summary passage of Jesus' ministry in the Galilean region. Uh, it's going to prepare us for chapter 10 that we'll be looking at next week. And uh, this, is, this is a passage that's probably very familiar. You've probably heard it a hundred times. And uh, it's probably one that has led to, if my response is any reaction, it's one that's led to uh, a little bit of conviction and probably a little bit of guilt uh, as we hear these, uh, these words from Jesus. So I'm going to invite everybody to stand as we look at the final passage in chapter 9 of Matthew's Gospel. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he says to, said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Let's pray. Father, once again, as we approach your word this morning, we pray for the guidance of the Holy Spirit to help us to understand. We pray that you would open our eyes to see how these words apply to our lives where we live today. And we pray this because of Jesus. Amen. Please take a seat. So, Matthew records for us that Jesus went around to all of the cities and villages in Galilee, and in each place, he would go and he would teach in the synagogue. He was filling that role as rabbi. He was going out and he was proclaiming God's word. And he was proclaiming the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God. He was proclaiming the good news to people. Uh, in Sunday school this morning, we talked about John the Baptist and his proclamation that the kingdom of God was here. And that's what Jesus was teaching. Um, in the synagogues, like I said, he would be in the role of a rabbi, so he would uh, take the scroll that was handed to him by the ruler of the synagogue. He would take it and open it to the passage that was prescribed for the day. Uh, the, the rabbi didn't get to pick like I do. Okay, the, the scroll was handed, the passage was opened. He would then read the passage, much like I just read, from the Bible, he would read the, the passage from the scroll. Everybody would be standing up, and once he was done, he would roll the scroll back up, and then he would sit down and begin to teach. This is where our societies differ from his society. I don't get to sit down and teach. It is expected that I get to stand up and, and teach. Um, after he read, and as he was teaching, the application of the passage of Scripture uh, a normal rabbi would refer to scholars, to other rabbis, to other schools of thought, to the equivalent of commentaries and other pastors and teachers to explain what the passage meant. But if you remember back at the end of chapter 7, Jesus didn't teach that way. He taught with authority. He could speak the truth of the Word of God because he was the Word of God. So when he was explaining things, he didn't say, 
scholars think that maybe, or there's a good possibility that, no, Jesus just said, this is what it means. And he was done. I can't live up to that example. Don't get your hopes up, okay? (laughs) So when he read from the prophet Isaiah, he could tell the crowd definitively, when when he read from, and and you see this in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus was in the synagogue, he read from the prophet Isaiah, he then sat down and he said, today these words are being fulfilled in your sight. He was done. That was the message. And he could do that because he knew definitively what the word meant. And Matthew also tells us that he didn't just teach in the synagogues. Now, this was something different. Rabbis generally did not just go around teaching anywhere. It was in the synagogues. During the week, Monday or Sunday through Monday, the rabbis would find themselves interacting with each other. That's where they would compare ideas and they would debate the finer points of Scripture. Jesus, Sunday through Monday, was going around teaching in the villages. He was healing people. He was proclaiming. He was doing things like the Sermon on the Mount. And his message was very similar to the message of John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, the time is here. He was starting to point them towards the spiritual reality that all of the stuff that they were doing, all of the the religious piety that they were doing, the going to synagogue to hear the, the rabbi teach, the prayers, the sacrifices, the things that they were doing because that's what you do, were not sufficient to gain them eternal life. Finally, along with his preaching and his teaching, he was healing people. Verse 35, let me read it again. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. I don't know that that means there was a sudden lack of a need for doctors in Galilee. Okay, I don't know that every there really means every. It's basically saying that anybody who came to him, he healed. Any disease that he encountered as he encountered them, he healed. The point here was that this was demonstrating his authenticity and his authority in his message. So it wasn't just that he was teaching with authority, but then when he got done teaching, he steps outside, and there's a blind man. He touches the blind man, and his sight's restored. He gets done teaching in the city square. He turns around. There's a leper coming towards him. He says to the leper, be clean, and the leper's clean. He's walking down the street, and there's a a man who's paralyzed who's sitting next to the building begging for, for enough money that he can survive for another day. And Jesus says, get up, take up your mat, walk, go find a job. And he does. I've said before that God uses these events as kind of that that stamp of approval. That seal of, this is my message, signed, God. Right? Even the Pharisees took note. Last week, when I I read from John chapter 3, Nicodemus came to Jesus 
And he said, we know that you are a teacher who's come from God because you couldn't do these things if you weren't. That's what he's talking about. Everybody understood that the things that Jesus was doing were not possible apart from God. Now, that's kind of at odds with what we read last week in verse 34. In verse 34, the Pharisees said he cast out demons by the prince of demons. Now, as far as I'm concerned, that's nothing but rotten tomatoes right there. That's just, they're jealous. They're angry that this guy has authority, that this guy is preaching a message that is counter to theirs, that this guy is telling the people that what the Pharisees have been teaching is not accurate. He's stealing their audience. He's stealing their notoriety. I think that right there wasn't necessarily a case of belief. I think it was a case of jealousy. And that's why Jesus will later warn them in uh, chapter 10, I believe it is. Um, Maybe not. I think it is. Um, Where Jesus will warn about the unpardonable sin. So... Matthew describes Jesus' demeanor here. When he saw the crowds, where is he? Where is Jesus when this is happening? Is he in Jerusalem? Is he even in Judea? No, he's up in Galilee. He's up there in the the northern part, right? If, If this is the promised land, if this is Israel, Palestine, right? Judea is down here. Jerusalem's down here, and then you have Samaria's, this band right here, and Galilee is all the way up here at the top. Is Galilee predominantly Jewish? No, it's not. It's called Galilee of the Nations. It's a crossroads of people from all over the place. You have Assyrians and Babylonians and Persians and Greeks and Romans and Jews, and you have all kinds of people and all kinds of religions living in this area, and there's some leftover Canaanites and Philistines and and everything else up there. And Matthew says when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. So was he only looking at the Jews? No, he wasn't. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Not because the land was occupied by the Roman government. Not because there were so many different racial and and religious backgrounds there. Not because uh, they were poor or afflicted, though they probably were. But he looked at them because they were like a flock of sheep without a shepherd. Have you ever seen domesticated animals without a caregiver? Most often, societally, what we run into in that particular case are cats and dogs. Right now, now there's a difference between a cat and a sheep. There's a difference between a dog and a sheep. Dogs and cats are predators. They have those natural instincts that were eventually, when they get hungry enough, they will go hunt something. It may not be what God created them to hunt, but they will hunt something. And cats that go feral will survive, and they will spread, and they will spread, and they will spread. And if you don't believe me, come drive through my neighborhood. Okay. Uh, dogs, it's not quite as common to see feral dogs except out on long stretches of road by the interstate. 
because people drop their dogs off at rest areas and along the road, and the ones that don't get killed, they go off and live, and they become feral and that sort of stuff. Um, But farm animals, farm animals are a special breed. They're really kind of dumb. And I'm speaking out of experience here, okay? They're they're really kind of dumb. They're not quite as dumb as the people that devote their lives to taking care of them. <laughs> you, you, exactly. You can't argue with it, right? All the cow has to do is stand there and eat and be taken care of. That's actually pretty smart. But when it comes to survival, they just don't have the instincts there. They can't find sheep especially. Sheep have to be herded. They cannot survive without being cared for. A sheep will stand in the same pasture and eat until it's eating dirt. They're that dumb. Doesn't it make you feel good that the most often comparison we find in Scripture for God's people is sheep? We're that dumb. As I was preparing this week, and I started thinking about this, took my mind directly to that sheep in New Zealand, Shrek, who survived for six years without being captured by his shepherd. Six years he went without being caught and having his wool shorn. Six years. When he was captured, (laughs) when they finally caught him, he couldn't be moving too fast, all right? Because he was carrying 60 pounds of wool. A normal annual harvest of wool from a sheep was somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 pounds. 9 to 10 pounds. So he was carrying six years worth of growth on his back. Imagine the parasites that could have been living in that. The disease that could have been bred because of that. Think of the weight, the strain on his... Look, I'm carrying about 30 extra pounds. And my knees tell me every day that I'm carrying about 30 extra pounds. That's just 30 pounds. He's carrying 60 pounds of extra weight. His joints, his muscles, his heart had to work harder to provide the blood flow for the muscles in order to climb those rocky hills in New Zealand where he could search out food. The only reason, I'm convinced, the only reason he was able to survive was because he was in New Zealand. Because if you've ever seen pictures of New Zealand, it's green and lush. And they do have grass all over the place. But now take that sheep and put them someplace like the Judean wilderness. Where the pastures are very sparse. And they surround the oases. Oases? Whatever that word is. Multiple oasis things. There aren't pastures every hundred feet. There isn't running water. Everywhere. You know, a sheep will not drink out of a stagnant pool. In order for a sheep to drink water, the water has to be flowing. Did you know that? 
That's why the 23rd Psalm says what it says about he leads me. It's got to be water that's moving. It's got to be percolating. It has to be clear. Sheep won't drink from stagnant water. This sheep only survived because of where he was. And I will bet you, at the end of that six years, that sheep probably didn't have even the foggiest idea that he was going to run ever again. I'm reminded of the the parable of the prodigal. Y'all know what prodigal means? Wasteful and extravagant. The son took his inheritance and he squandered it and he lived without a shepherd until he was at the point where he was contemplating stealing food from the pigs. And when he finally came back, the last thing on his mind was living without a shepherd too. So we have this picture here of Jesus looking at the crowds, thinking about their harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. For a sheep, the shepherd is not just the person who drives them. And by the way, Jesus is talking about Middle Eastern shepherds. Middle Eastern shepherds aren't like American shepherds. American shepherds do the things the same way every American does. We do it by brute force, right? How do we herd sheep in the United States? We use dogs, we use four-wheelers, and we push. We herd them. How does a Middle Eastern shepherd work with their sheep? From the front. They lead them. They call to them and the sheep follow. That All of the imagery that Jesus uses about being a shepherd makes a whole lot more sense when you think about a Middle Eastern shepherd than an American shepherd. My sheep know my voice and they come to me. A Middle Eastern sheepfold would be a walled compound where, where shepherds would take their sheep at night to keep them safe from the predators. And they would just pack all these sheep into this big walled storage bin. And they didn't have plastic tags for the sheep's ears. They didn't have RFID so they could scan to know whose sheep was whose. So how did they separate the sheep so that they didn't mix the flocks up? By the voice of the shepherd. The shepherd would come to the door. He would swing the door open. He'd say, okay, sheep, come on. And all of his sheep would come. And all of the others would stay back. Because the sheep knows the voice of their shepherd. American shepherds cannot do this. It doesn't work. The shepherd is protector. Think about the picture of David. As David was a young man in the field, watching over his flock at night. His flock was attacked by a bear and a lion. And what did he do? He killed them. American shepherds wouldn't do that either, except with a high-powered rifle. David did it with a sling and a stone, just like he did Goliath. Matthew says the people are harassed and helpless. The Romans, the Gentiles, the foreign religious structures, the impact of the exile, their separation from Jerusalem, the weight of the people's own sin, all of these things are on the backs like Six years worth of wool on the back of these sheep as they're struggling to survive. Have you ever felt that oppressed? 
all week long. <laughs> all week long. I had talked with my boss on Friday. I said, you know, every day this week I've been ready to go home at noon. I've done a day's worth of work in four hours. It weighs on you. It's heavy on you. It's weary. It, it's just, it drags you down. And that's what Jesus sees when he looks upon these people and they're calling to him. You have the blind men. Son of David, have mercy on us. You have the centurion. Lord, I know you have the ability. My servant is sick. You have Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue. My daughter has just died. These people are looking for somebody to take that load off of them. Maybe not eternally, but at least at the moment, they are looking at Jesus as a prophet who can help them. And Jesus is looking back at a bunch of people who need help. And it may be that Jesus was reminded of the prophet Ezekiel. Chapter 4 of Ezekiel, verses 5 and 6. Chapter 34 is actually a prophecy against the shepherds of Israel. Huh, how about that? The shepherds of Israel. In verses 5 and 6, God speaks of his sheep being scattered and not cared for by their shepherds. Who were the shepherds that he was prophesying against? But the leaders of Israel, the kings and the Levites and the priests. And God is sending Ezekiel to prophesy against them because they're letting the people just wander. You can't do that with sheep. They'll wander off the edge of a cliff looking for a fresh blade of grass. Ezekiel wrote his prophecy prior to the fall of Jerusalem and the invasion by the Babylonians. The religious and political re- leaders leaders of Jerusalem, of Judah, had lost all right to that title. The king was a king just because he was a king. He was a bad king. He didn't do what a king was supposed to do. He didn't care for his people. He didn't lead his people. He didn't shepherd his people. He didn't protect them from idolatry. He didn't protect them from the wolves. The priests and the Levites, they actually abandoned their practices in the temple. They started accepting faulty sacrifices. Bring us your, bring us your sacrifice for the sin offering. It's okay. It doesn't matter that that sheep has three legs. It's better than nothing. Come on, bring it in. And so God brought the Babylonians to discipline them for their greed and corruption, their syncretism, their idolatry, and all the things that had caused the shepherds to abandon the sheep. But Jesus was the good shepherd. The one who said he knows his sheep and he cares for his sheep. And the the one who lays his life down for his sheep rather than the hireling who runs away at the first sign of attack. You can see his compassion even more clearly in this picture. Jesus is looking at the people of Galilee. He's looking at this mixed bag of people in Galilee who have no shepherd. This is a pointer to the inclusion of people outside the Jews in the gospel. And so out of this compassion, Jesus says to his disciples, verse 37, 
The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into this harvest. The picture of harvest in Scripture is used to represent the end times activity of God. In the Old Testament, it's not really a good thing. In the Old Testament, God's end time activity is that of purging the world of His enemies. In the New Testament, in Jesus' words more specifically, this, the, the other side of the coin, is when God purges His enemies, He's then going to gather His own. He's going to bring them in. He's going to separate the sheep from the goats. The goats are going to be consigned to hell. The sheep are not. The sheep are going to go with the shepherd. He's going to collect up the, the harvest from the field. And, and Jesus gives a parable of the wheat and the tares, the wheat and the weeds. And at the harvest, they're all going to be brought into the storehouse. And then the winnowing is going to take place. And everything that's a weed is going to be tossed into the fire heap. And everything that's wheat is going to be brought in to the kingdom. So this picture here of God bringing judgment on his enemies and bringing his own to himself, Jesus says the harvest is ready, the field is bursting with crop, I'm waiting for the day that our garden hits this state. It came close last year with purple-holed peas and lima beans. You know what food that I hate the most? It's lima beans. Cannot stand those creatures. So I have this picture of the harvest. And I mean, we had lima beans climbing up our oak tree. I mean, they were all over the place. Lima beans, they just, yeah. So I have this picture of the harvest, of going out. And the purple-holed peas, those are actually kind of good. I kind of like those. But you just go in and you just, you harvest everything. And then the purple-holed peas, they're the ones that go into the kingdom. And the lima beans are the ones that go to the fires of hell, where they belong. Jesus says that the harvest is ready, the field is ready to be gathered. But you can't do it with just one person. Jesus, though He is the Christ, though He is the Son of God, in His humanity, He was not omnipresent. That means He could not be everywhere at every time. He was fully man. And I don't know about you, I've tried to get this through my supervisor's head many, many, many times. I cannot be in more than one place at one time. And I really, no matter how many times I try to tell Steph that I can do this, I cannot multitask. It does not happen. I know, you've got witnesses, I've admitted it now in public. All right, I cannot do two things at once. And Jesus, Matthew just said that Jesus is, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel. So he's teaching, he's preaching, he's healing, he's ministering, he's doing all these things. He's not doing them all at one time. It's still a process. And he can only be in one place at one time. So when Jesus is in Capernaum, guess what? In Nazareth, Jesus isn't. So he says to the disciples, look, I can't do it on my own. In order to look at this field, look at all the crops, without, again, I grew up on a farm. 
even with the modern technology that we have, to harvest a crop of any size takes time. And when I'm harvesting, because we tried to do this, when we're putting hay in the barn before a thunderstorm comes, we try to be in every hay field at one time. You can't. And so you wind up losing some of the crop. Jesus says, I can't be in every place at every time. He's letting them know that he's going to need help in the mission of preaching and teaching the gospel and healing the sick and spreading the word of the kingdom of God. He could not reach everyone with the gospel in his three-year ministry. It is impossible. Listen closely. It is impossible for any one person to take on the whole responsibility of kingdom work. You cannot do it on your own. Part of the reason we're commanded to gather as a church is so that we can do what? We can pray for one another. We can encourage one another. Why do we need encouragement? It's hard work and people are dirty. People are hard to deal with. My duty title is instructor supervisor. Okay? So I supervise instructors. Pretty pretty plain. Right? This past week, I said on at least three separate occasions, this job would be really easy if it weren't for the students and the instructors. Because people. Because Tuesday morning, one of my instructors sends me a text. I lost my voice. This particular instructor I could do without hearing his voice. But he can't teach. So he stayed home. I have another instructor. I need to extend my leave. The contractors are still working on my house. I'm not another person. People are messy. They're hard to deal with. We need to encourage one another because if we don't get encouragement, we're going to lose heart. We're going to not want to do stuff. That's why we're commanded to come together. This is why God has given us the diverse body that is the church. The fourth chapter of Ephesians. Paul tells the church that God gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. Some, not everybody. So that means not everybody is a pastor teacher. By the way, those two words are linked in the Greek. Pastor teacher. That's why I teach so much when I preach. Okay? Not everybody is an evangelist. What did Paul write to Timothy? Do the work of an evangelist. Timothy wasn't an evangelist. But Paul said that's part of your responsibility is to evangelize. Well, good grief. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is talking about the spiritual gifts. Some have the gift of prophecy, some have the gift of tongues, some have the gift of interpretation, some have the gift of administration, some have the gift of exhortation, some have the gift of service, all of these different gifts. But everybody doesn't have all of them. What does that mean? That means we have to work together to do this job. It cannot fall to a single person. The commission to make disciples, the end of the book of Matthew, chapter 28, Jesus makes that that statement. 
All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Teaching them all that I have commanded you. And baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I am with you until the end of the age. Right? That is universally accepted as being applicable to all believers. I don't know why. I really don't know why. Because it would be really easy for me to say, well, Jesus was specifically talking to the apostles. So I'm off the hook. But that's not how it works. <laughs> I'm not an evangelist. And then God had to go and inspire Paul to tell Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. They all crud. Guess what? We all share the responsibility to be the laborers that Jesus is talking about. But there's good news. Verse 37, he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Verse 38, therefore, whenever you see a therefore, you need to stop and look to figure out what it's there for. Remember that. It's a connecting word. It connects the clause. It's a, it's a if then or a since then. Since the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few, then... Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Who is the Lord of the harvest? It's not the worker. It's not the pastor. It's not the apostle. It's not the evangelist. It's not the prophet. It's not the individual laborers that Jesus is talking to. There is only one Lord of the harvest. That's God himself. Because it is God alone who sends the Holy Spirit who regenerates the dead sinner, who grants the faith so that we may believe, who declares us to be justified, who makes us to be sanctified, and who sees us as glorified. God's the one who does all the work. We're just tools in His hand. But unlike the tools that I have back at home in my shed, that are just sitting in a toolbox waiting for me to do something with them, we have to be willing to be used. God alone is the one who enables, equips, and empowers us to do the work of ministry. Please, in all of those passages that I read, or that I quoted, Ephesians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul's letter to Timothy, Matthew chapter 28, please, this week, I want you to look at those. And if you find a loophole that says this does not apply to Christians over the age of 65. This does not apply to Christians who work outside the home. This does not apply to Christians who fill in the blank. If you find that, send me an email, let me know. So I'm going to do everything I can to get into that category. Right? No. There are no loopholes. The whole church has the responsibility.
So you may not know what your gift is. You may be eager to tell me what your gift is not. Well, I'm not, I'm not gifted to be a teacher. Okay. I can believe that. I really can. Because I know not everybody likes to speak in public. I don't know why. It's the most natural thing in the world as far as I'm concerned. Because that's how God gifted me. But I got to tell you, God did not gift me to be an encourager. (laughs) Instead, he put prophecy higher on my list. Not that I can tell the future, but I can tell you that you're suffering because you done sinned. I can't encourage people the way others can. Maybe you are an encourager. Maybe you are an administrator. I am not an administrator. If you don't believe me, please come look at my desk. Anywhere. Anything that I have that I call a desk. I am not an organizer. I am not an administrator. That's not how God gifted me. Does that mean I can just live in a chaotic world? No. I have to organize stuff in order to be efficient at the things that I do. I am not an evangelist. An evangelist is somebody who that God has specifically gifted with evangelism. A person who is gifted as an evangelist can go out and preach on the street corner and the trash can will get saved. That is the picture of Jesus when he tells the disciples that follow me, I will make you fishers of men. Those are guys who go out on a boat and throw a big net and haul in a bunch of fish. When Paul tells Timothy, do the work of an evangelist, he's telling you, grab a fishing pole. If you're going to fish with a fishing pole, you need to know what bait to use. You need to know where the fish are. And you need to coax that fish. You need to convince that fish that that bait is something that fish wants. You have to work at it. If you're not gifted as an evangelist, you can still grab a fishing pole. Not only can you, but you should. You're commanded to. See, Jesus commanded the disciples here to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers. And then as we're going to see next week in chapter 10, starting in verse 5, Jesus does something with those 12 disciples, actually starting in verse 1. He designates them as more than students. Disciple is that, it's a student. Chapter 10, Jesus takes those 12 students and he grants them authority. And so they go from being a disciple to being an apostle. Apostle, apostolos, one who is sent with authority. And when he does this, he just told them, pray for, pray that the Lord would send workers. Guess what? You're the first group. So we need to join in that prayer but we need to recognize that we are in that group. So what does that mean? We need to start doing kingdom work. Pastor, I don't know what to do. 
We're going to start right now. 